We're now going to begin a panel uh, for the next hour or so, and we're going to have a number of speakers uh, from whom you've heard these past couple of days. And the topic of our panel is sanctification, Christian life, and the pastoral ministry. And what I have done is I solicited each of our panelists for questions. I gathered them, redacted them, grouped them. And this, I think, having reviewed these questions, having been here the last couple of days, I think will help weave together a number of things we've been hearing uh, and do it in a way that will be compelling and helpful as we hear men speak about their own experiences in the Christian life and in the Christian ministry. So without further ado, let me invite our panelists to come forward. Uh, We have uh, Dr. Kelly. Uh, We have uh, Dr. Johnson, Terry Johnson, who may have had to leave to uh, travel home. I'm not sure. Oh, he is here. Uh, Liam Gallagher, who is present. Uh, John Payne. 9.30, thank you. And Steve Lawson. And if you gentlemen would please come forward. I'm grateful for each of these panelists, and because this panel falls where it does, I don't have to introduce any of them to you. You know them very well. And so let me begin with our first question. The first series of questions concerns the Bible's teaching on sanctification. And so to begin, let me ask, uh, perhaps we'll begin with you, Terry. Is sanctification by faith? Why or why not? And after Terry answers, if other panelists would please chime in. I would say it certainly is by faith and by grace. Um, That doesn't answer the question how faith is operative in sanctification, whereas uh, faith is passive. Uh, It is the instrument of reception. In um, justification, uh, faith is active in sanctification. As we heard yesterday, there's a synergistic relationship between the saint and the Savior when it comes to sanctification. That's absolutely right. I think of the wonderful book by John Murray, Redemption Accomplished and Applied. And in that book... He essentially shows that all the steps in the Ordo Salutis are just different ways of looking at our union with Christ, effectual calling into union with Christ and faith, justification, sanctification, and the rest. And so we're not saved as as orphans and left to negotiate our way alone. We're brought into union with the Savior and Lord. And to be in union with him as one of the essence of the new covenant, there's an interiority. God has written his law within your heart so that you inherently desire to love and obey him. That is given in union with Christ. Uh, Our life is hidden with Christ in God. Christ is our life. And when he appears, we shall appear with him in glory. And so therefore, of course, to be in union with Christ is no question but that you have uh, something of his desire to love the Father, to be pleasing to the Father. One of the first signs of being in union with Christ is praying. You know, when they went to find Saul of Tarsus, it said, Behold, he prayeth. So the child of God in union with the Savior cries out in prayer, and then you seek his face, and you hate your sins, and you uh, seek to turn from them. But You seek to be like him. You cannot believe in God and spit in his son's face. Uh, You love him. You want to please him. That's given in the new birth. I think this stuff about, uh, it's almost sort of an odd dispensationalism. You know, Jesus Christ is Savior but not Lord. And if you're generous enough, you can later make him perhaps Lord. Um, No. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in thine heart that God has raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Romans 10 and 9. So I think 
the thing that you can be, uh, you don't need to worry about sanctification. It's only by, by faith, and Jesus does it all for you. It's simply a neglect of the doctrine of regeneration, that regeneration makes no difference. It's a transaction. I walk to the front or whatever, get baptized, believe, quote, believe, and then I'm, God's obliged to take me to heaven, and if I later want to obey him, I might do it, and I might not, but I'll still get to heaven. That is a travesty of Christianity. That's a failure of having experienced regeneration of the new birth in which the Holy Spirit is put within us, and deep within we want to please the Lord and, and, and be like him, and so we love the Father. Well, I, I'm preaching. <laughs> Yeah, I don't think I can add anything to what Terry and Doug have already said. It's very spot on. And I, I really like the distinction you made between faith being receptive uh, at the point of justification by faith and it becomes active in our sanctification. Um, that's a very good distinction. All things are by faith, certainly, but there's more to the story. Um, than that, and it has been helpful for me to make the distinction between monergistic regeneration and synergistic sanctification. Otherwise, um, you just have a passive Christian life, if it's even a Christian life at all. Yes, I think sanctification by faith is sometimes uh, seen as uh, or understood as synonymous uh, with focusing merely on our justification for our sanctification. Always looking back to our, it was mentioned last night, and I think it's synonymous with this uh, for some when they say sanctification by faith. What they mean uh, by that, what they're thinking of, is that uh, as we focus on our justification by faith, that sanctification is just going to kind of happen. So there's a passivity uh, connected to that in their thinking. And the, 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 the passage that was mentioned a moment ago in Colossians 3 by Dr. Kelly is such a marvelous one because it, it demonstrates both <clears throat> uh, the, the focus on Christ and then from that uh, the active mortifying of sin and the putting on of, of, of Christ and the marks of, of the true Christian. If then you have been raised with Christ, if you are united to him, in other words, seek things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. It's Romans 6 language, isn't it? Union with Christ. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you will also appear with him in glory. Some want to stop there. And they want to say, okay, dwell on that, full stop, and then you'll be sanctified. But the Apostle Paul goes on, doesn't he? Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And then later in verse 12, put on as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another in love, and on and on. Mortify, vivify, put off, put on. That is the response of having our eyes fixed on Jesus. So it's that active sanctification. It's always bad being the last one to speak when they've all said all that needs to be said. Of course, there's nothing else to say, but we'll say something anyway. Uh, when, when, um, when I was in, in the UK, I was involved for, for many years speaking at the Keswick Convention, one of the larger conventions there. And in the history of Keswick, of course, there was a view of sanctification by faith, let go and let God. Uh, it had variations on that. There was uh, the, at one stage, Stephen Alford and Alan Redpath were the big speakers, and they were promoting the Jesus as Lord as opposed to Jesus as Savior element. But the let go and let God thing was the hardest thing to get rid of. And what turned the corner in, in the Keswick movement was a series of expositions that John Stott did on Romans 5 to, 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 to 8. And as he, I mean, I, I'm not a flag bearer for, for everything John Stott says, but in this occasion, uh, as he was doing Romans 5 to 8, that had a, a tremendous effect on that convention. It really shaped, changed and shaped the way sanctification would be dealt with from then on up until very recently where other influences 
from Florida, uh, among other places, are, are breaking in. PCA, you know, influences <clears throat> a certain wing of PCA with Armenian names. Uh, and you can work out who I'm referring to with a bit of uh, imagination. That's beginning to affect the British scene. But, but there in Romans 6, when Paul is addressing the question, you know, do we sin so that grace may abound? All of Romans 6 is an answer to that. You have to be done with all of the, all of the, the, uh, the things of the, the flesh and the body and so on. And uh, it's all very positive, active stuff. It's the synergism again, working together with God. Good. I think my mic works. So, so let me direct the first question, next question to you. As long as it's an easy one. Yes. <laughs> we, uh, a bit of background of the question. It's related to the former. We're all in this room sons of the Reformation. We prize justification by faith alone. The righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. Does that mean that God could never be displeased with a believer? I don't think you can read the book of Hebrews, for example, without recognizing that the church can displease God. The individual believer can displease, can displease God. And that in the writer to the Hebrews, use of the Old Testament, for example, I think we are right for, to go back, say, to a book like Isaiah, and see that as Isaiah is addressing the people of God as he's addressing the covenant community and uh, as they experience the disciplining hand of God on them just as Israel did in the, in the wilderness. So the church of Jesus Christ suffers under the disciplining hand of God if it doesn't take God seriously, if it doesn't take the word of God seriously. When Jesus is speaking to the seven churches, he is talking to the individual who has the ears to hear and, and that individual has responsibility to the church as well as to his Lord to believe what the Lord is saying and to, to respond appropriately. Uh, I, I think that when you read Hebrews uh, 12 about the, the chastening hand of God in the life of the believer, God will have us to be holy one way or another. We either respond to his word or he gives us the rough treatment. Yes, um, I think a, uh, an illustration from our own lives is, is perhaps helpful. When we think about our own children, uh, we love them. Of course, they're in our family. Uh, we're not going to, uh, to kick them out of the house uh, when they have done something wrong. But there are, there are times when we, are, when we are, of course, pleased with them and their obedience. Uh, there are times where we are displeased with them. Um, oftentimes we see the effects of their obedience around us. We see the effects of their disobedience around us. And uh, I think that as we read our Bibles, <laughs> as we read through the Old Testament, as we look at the book of Judges, as we uh, consider scriptures like do not quench the Holy Spirit, as we as again read Hebrews and see uh, the challenges there, uh, it is a nonsense uh, to say that God cannot be displeased with his children. This idea that because we are adopted sons, and have been pardoned for all of our sins, and God looks with favor upon us now, and we've been reconciled to him, that he cannot be displeased with our disobedience, uh, really go- just goes against the grain of so much Scripture, I think. Yes, um, obviously God can be displeased with those who have the imputed righteousness of Christ, and Scripture taking it straightforward um, for what it says, I-, I think, indicates that. And... Um, Colossians 1, verse 10, Paul prays for the church at Colossae that they will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Could we ever walk in a manner less than worthy of the Lord? And the answer is, of course, yes. Um, Otherwise, Paul would not even bother to pray that they will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And then what immediately follows, to please Him in all respects. Um, it's a very obvious implication of this, even cause and effect relationship, that if you walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, you will please Him in all respects. If you do not walk in a manner worthy of your calling, you will displease the Lord. Um, that's very straightforward. Paul says to the Corinthian church in Second Corinthians 5 and 
verse 9, that our ambition, must, whether at home or absent, is to be pleasing to Him. Uh, that is our goal. That is our driving ambition. And not to be pleasing to men, but to be pleasing to God. Now, that statement clearly implies that we can be displeasing to God. And the very next verse, in context, he says, for, which now introduces an explanation, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each man may be recompensed for his deeds. We are saved by grace, we will be judged by our deeds. In the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad, and the bad there has the idea of worthless. So our sins are not coming up, but there's going to be a separation of what we did that was good and that which was just essentially wood, hay, and stubble. It was just worthless. Um, And in this discussion is our ambition must be to please God because there is a day of accounting that will come on the final day. And so it's, it's just to live in a delusional state in the Christian life, which many are pr- proposing that, that there is not, that there are not displeasing motives, displeasing actions, displeasing doctrine, displeasing manner of walk. Um, also in Romans chapter 14, in uh, verse 18, just a, another passage, and, and, and I think, um, you know, I'm reminded of Spurgeon who said, I will not believe a matter unless you can show me chapter and verse. And I think that um, some of these texts need to be heard. Um, he says in Romans 14, and... Um, In verse 17, for the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who in this way serves Christ is acceptable to God. Um, There is a manner of life and ministry that is, quite frankly, unacceptable to God. Uh, There is worship that is acceptable. There is worship that is, quite frankly, unacceptable to God. And so, these texts have to be taken into account. Another would be 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 1. But I also think uh, Liam mentioned uh, the book of Hebrews, which was a very great citation. I I think that those who say that a believer can never be displeasing to God, again, take no account of the full counsel of God and the fact that there is God's discipline for that which is displeasing to Him. I think maybe just one other text aside would be the seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3. Uh, the Lord has strong words for five of the seven. Uh, the two that He does not were the two persecuted churches uh, because that has a, has a sanctifying effect. But when He, in Revelation 2, when He commends the church at Ephesus, but in verse 4, comes to the, but I have this against you, has a chilling effect, or it should, that you have left your first love. Um, You're still in the beloved, but you have left your first love. And this is very displeasing to the Lord. So I, I think all of these texts need to be taken into account, and I think personally, many who want to argue that um, a believer can never be displeasing to the Lord, I, I, I think are just trying to get over their childhood in some way, um, and that they had a, some dysfunctional family, or they didn't have a father figure or something, and as an adult, they're still craving for some acceptance, and they cannot live with the fact that, that they would be displeasing to God in heaven, but they stand against text after text after text after text after text. So I, I, I think it's a mark of their immaturity um, that they would try to hold one portion of Scripture against, I mean, one acorn against the forest.
Yeah, you've had very good answers. I'll simply summarize it and say we're back to the point that when we're saved, when we're regenerated by the Holy Spirit through what Christ has done, we're brought into a continuing eternal relationship with God the Father Almighty as our Father. Christ is the only begotten Son, Son of the nature. We are adopted sons and daughters. A father both loves and disciplines his sons and daughters. You know, on the one hand, Psalm 103, like as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear him. But then you've got in Proverbs and in Hebrews, whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and disciplineth every son whom he receiveth. If ye be without chastisement, then are ye bastards and not sons. And I, I, I don't, I'm very hesitant to say this because I might be quoted. In the, but Go for it. Uh, all right, then. <clears throat> to say God can the, never be displeased with you, it's almost like the spirit of a bastard. Because he's my father. Of course he's going to deal with me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't have anything to add to that. But I have something else to say, and then I want to run for the door. <laughs> Um, because I do have to leave. If you had told me when I entered the PCA back in 1981 that we would have um, a major disruption over the doctrine of justification, I would not have believed it was possible. Um, That we would then have a disruption over the doctrine of sanctification, I think if I were wiser, I would have anticipated that, that if if you undermine the foundation of justification then there are going to be problems with the doctrine of sanctification. And I think it's, um, it's, it's, to me, it's a tragedy because people like me came into Presbyterianism um, in full flight from the higher life, victorious life, let go, let God, um, Theology, which J.I. Packer in Knowing God calls it frankly cruel. Um, and that's the way I experienced it, was it was cruel. That if I was not um, uh, enjoying a struggle-free Christian life, I had a hang-up. There was some problem with, my, um, with uh, the way I was conducting or experiencing the Christian life. There was no room for struggle, no room for the fight of faith at all within those schemes. And so the Reformed understanding of sanctification, this synergism, and the Reformed view of the third use of the law, these were lifelines to people like me coming out of Southern California, Orange County Christianity, um, basically higher life-ish uh, kinds of views, and that we would um, cloud that issue within our own ranks and then cloud the clarity that we have to offer to others who probably are looking for somewhere to flee as well, um, to me is a, is a great, great tragedy because this is one of the strengths of our whole tradition. I'm reading right now Gurnall's The Christian Incomplete Armor. It is a magnificent 1,100 pages on sanctification. It's just fantastic. Every page of it is just brilliant. Um, that's the script. We are the Puritans. We get this one. Uh, and that we're confused now is, is a, I just think it's a very, very sad thing that's happened and a strong rebuttal uh, really uh, is necessary. So on that, I bid adieu. Well, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Spurgeon called uh, Gurnall's book, uh, mm. he called it his Bible, mm. next to his Bible, mm. um, that he just read constantly yes. in his fight for, for holiness and purity. Mm. That, that is a wonderful transition to our next set of questions. Uh, each of our panelists is well acquainted with the demands, the busyness of 
uh, congregational ministry. And so I want to ask each of you, how does a pastor with those demands pursue holiness? And what have you found to be the greatest helps in that pursuit of holiness amidst all the demands and obligations that press on you? Dr. Kelly, may we begin with you? Okay. Um, I was a pastor 10 years, full-time parish minister. I've been professor, I believe, 32 or something. And as professor, I've preached every Sunday and still preaching twice on Sunday. So I've had a hand in congregations since I became a professor. I would just say that I was a great, well, I was brought up in a home where the Lord was present and the sense of the presence of Christ. And so that the great atmosphere in my life always has been. But I would say as far as what you can do is in um, 1966, it was my second year at the seminary, I was visiting a Lumbee Indian in, in North Carolina very godly man, Plymouth Brethren preacher, one of the best preachers I ever heard in my life, Reverend Venus Brooks, and uh, some other minister. Well, Plymouth Brethren don't call them ministers, but whatever uh, <laughs> was there. Good men, although I was obviously heavily Presbyterian, and they knew that, but it's fine. One of them gave me a Bible reading program that he had said he'd gotten from one of the Puritans. And it was this. You read three chapters a day and five on the Sabbath and you get through the Bible in exactly one year. So on Monday you're reading Genesis, three chapters, mark it. On Tuesday you're reading Joshua, three chapters. Wednesday, Job. When you get through Job, you go to First Chronicles. Thursday, Isaiah. Friday, Matthew and the Gospels. Saturday, Romans and the rest. That gives you a balance through the Bible. You don't get worn out with any one part. And then you begin to see, oh, Peter, that obviously came from the psalm and this, that I read earlier. And so, so I started in 1966. Forget how many years that is. And every day I've read three chapters and five every Sabbath of the Bible. And to, uh, one advantage of age is it's a lot easier to prepare sermons and a lot quicker. Otherwise, I couldn't do all this conference speaking and other things. And that Bible reading every day has been a blessing. Then secondly, prayer. I got hold of a book. Um, from a world literature crusade. It was a man called Dick Eastman. I don't know him personally, but I found the book very helpful. I believe it was called The Hour That Changes the World. And I, I imagine he's Armenian, I don't know, or higher life or something might be. But the book was excellent. <clears throat> and it told you how to divide an hour of prayer into, I forget how many constituent parts. And so I, I cut them down. And later in that book, if God ever knows why I pray, it's an appendix. I got in touch with him, asked, could I use his thing? Although I was going to change it some. He said, it'd be fine. You start with praise. And I'm not going to put minutes on it, but you get a little bit of time. It was five minutes. Praise. Then you start with confession of sin. I mean, after... You start with praise, you go to confession of sin, um, and then, you know, there's various things you can do, but praise, confession of sin, then um, supplication or intercession for self, for family, um, for others, and then you wind it up with thanksgiving. And... So I started keeping missionary letters, letters from Christian schools, um, letters from friends, different churches, pictures of missionaries and so forth. And I mean, I've got in my suitcase, it's probably that thick. If if somebody asked me to pray for them, I'd say, I will, but write it down because I can't remember it. And 
said that's age. No, when I was 20, I couldn't remember anything. So they write it down, and then I pray till it's answered or no longer relevant, and then after a while, I'll put a check mark and throw it out. But um, so without fail, I have every day read three chapters of Scripture, five on Sabbath, and then done this time of praying. I don't know how long it is, and I ha- that, it's so thick. I have to divide it into about four or five parts. And one day, it's that stack, and put a marker. The next day, that, 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 that. My family's in it every day. Uh, but, uh, and sinful self is in it every day. But uh, these others, and, and I go through it. So I would say one of the greatest things that's ever happened. Well, I started that in the Bible reading thing in 1966. So I'd have been, I'd have been 20 something 20 I can't be good at counting but 22 or something 23 what have you and then I started the Bible the the prayer thing I got hold of that book in about 1974 and I've done that every day so and I want to say uh, I don't ever raise a question whether I feel like praying whether I feel like reading the Bible I know that a lot of people are depending on me, including the family, the ministry. Mm. I just go to it. I don't, I'm not one much to assess feelings anyway. I don't know how I feel. Um, <laughs> but I believe it will work. It's in the name of the victorious Jesus. And that's one of the major ways he's given me to change the world. That, that man, Eastman's book, The Hour to Change the World. Yes, it does it. So um, that I have done. As been, I mean, obviously I go to church three times a week, um, try to love my wife and children, apologize when I offend them, things like that. But um, the prayer and the Bible reading has been the very center of my soul all these years, and I never deviate from it. So that, that's my answer. But uh, go ahead, Stephen. <laughs> well, that is a wonderful uh, answer you've given us, Doug. Um, for me, and the question again, I just want to make sure I've got the exact statement of the question. Yes. Uh, the question again is, how does a pastor with all the pressures and obligations that come upon him in the course of pastoral ministry pursue personal piety, and what specifically have you found to be a help in that pursuit? Yeah, no, that's a good question. Um, I, I alluded to one thing earlier um, in one of the messages, which is the simple division of my day. I give my mornings to God, my afternoons to men, my evenings to my family. And I, I've been a pastor for 34 years and have just stepped down from my pastorate. But there was a very uh, regimented uh, setting apart of my mornings beginning very early in the morning. Um, in which I do not take phone calls, I, I do not return phone calls, I don't respond to emergencies unless it's actually an emergency, and probably nine out of ten are not really in an emergency, um, and give that time to God. And I have found that there is a building momentum that the first hour at least the second to the third, where if it's chopped up into little soundbite times, it's not as effective And in that time, um, I've had kind of a different type pastorate and and extended ministry, but I've preached a minimum of three and usually four times a week in my church with four different sermon preparations. And those, for me, have been highly devotional. To the point, I, I, I become so excited in my own heart that, that I literally have to stand up from my desk and walk around the room in circles just to work off the energy that I, I am so elated with what I have discovered. And so my, my sermon preparation, and, and it's been very um, exegetical as well, digging down into the text that it, it has just flowed through my bloodstream and had an extraordinary effect on my own spiritual life. So unlike some pastors who would have 
uh, a separate then devotional reading as well, which I can only applaud. Um, due to certain demands on my time, much of my devotion has actually been in the text that I've been preaching, but I think that it is made for better preaching because I've prayed my manuscript back to God, and I've preached my sermon to God, and I've preached it to myself, and that has required time to, to do that. And it's, it's kind of like 1 plus 1 plus 1 equals 10. There is a leverage effect. Um, deeper is better than shallower, and, and just to continue to go deeper down into the same passage. Having said that, I, I also read individual books in the Bible rather than Doug's approach, which I think is phenomenal, and I've been reading on Robert Murray McShane's life here recently and his reading plan. Um, and I may need to actually adopt that as a different way to scale the mountain, but I've been taking individual books in the Bible and reading them through multiple times and Xeroxing them and just carrying that Xerox around with me on airplanes and the hotels, whatever, and, and to mark it up. And right now I'm reading Jeremiah, and I, and I tend to try to go to portions of Scripture I'm least familiar with compared to other portions of Scripture. Um, and there is a, a huge devotional element in, in that for me. And, and, and we know from the Ephesians 5 to the Colossians 3, being filled with the Spirit parallels with letting the Word of Christ richly dwell within you. Um, th- there's also been, and, and Guy, you would know this as well, in writing books, um, there is a, a, a real devotional element in going through the discipline of writing a book. There is some that is not devoted, some parts that are not, i.e. footnotes and that type of thing. But there are other parts that are highly exhilarating to my soul. And, and that has to be thrown into the mix. And then also, I love reading Christian biographies. And there are many Christian biographies that have just electrified my spiritual life as I get in the skin of another believer, and it's almost a form of fellowship. And, and as I, in essence, walk with them as I read through this biography or their diary or their memoirs, um, it, it is a very sanctifying effect that really challenges me to, to greater devotion to the Lord. I mean, just when I think everything's fine, then I read these biographies, and I realize I'm in kindergarten. Um, I, I, I'm just playing American Legion ball. I'm not even in the minor leagues, much less the major leagues. And those biographies stir my heart and my, my soul. So, you know, the, the, the cumulative effect of all those plus... I don't really listen to sermons. I listen to them when I speak at conferences, but I read sermons. And just reading McShane's sermons for preparing to come here, they just blow dry my hair. I mean, they're so powerful. And it's, that's not without effect upon my own spiritual life. And then, of course, prayer. And for me, I'm kind of an ADD adult. My mind can wander and so I need to lock into portions of Scripture like the Lord's model prayer in John, I mean in Matthew 6, and to, and to pray through that, expanding it, and then to take Paul's prison prayers and to expand those from own life, and then to take the Psalms and to pray line by line through the Psalms and make it vicarious and put myself into the psalmist. Um, prayer, it's almost like hanging onto a ski rope and the boat just pulls you um, as you pray. And by the way, also as far as devotion, one of the most exhilarating things for my own spiritual life was to preach through all 150 Psalms and to preach through all of them line by line and verse by verse and to take a little over six years to do that. The effect that that had upon my spiritual life, it, it wasn't just a dabbling here and a dabbling there and hydroplaning over um, certain things. It, it was a having to go down into these psalms 
that are so vertical and to lead me up to the throne of God. And then out of that, I wrote a two-volume commentary on the Psalms. All of that revolutionized my, my own spiritual walk with the Lord such that for me, that's just how it worked out for me. And, and I do think I would say this to the men. It's kind of like even your own preaching style. You, you've got to go with what works for you. You can't be someone else. You can't live. You can't put on Saul's armor and try to go out against Goliath. And so you've got your own unique preaching style. And I think even devotionally, there is a uniqueness about your encounter with God that um, you, you need, it's like Calvin says, you need to know God, you need to know yourself as he starts the Institutes. And a part of knowing yourself is even how I pursue God with maximum communion and fellowship with God. So anyway, sorry for the long answer. We're glad that the answer is long mm -hmm. because it demonstrates that uh, you're being an example to us, I think, in your devotional life. And, you know, it's interesting. As I was sitting with uh, a pastor in his uh, 50s, when I was a young uh, man in seminary, I asked him what he did for his devotional life. I sincerely wanted to know so that I could gain from him. And I asked him about his, his uh, devotional life, what he did for his, his quiet time. And he said, well, <clears throat> I don't have a quiet time. I think that's a, a legalistic hangover. Uh, from uh, some you know, age where uh, uh, people are sensing that the need and the duty to do this when really we just shouldn't feel that way. It shouldn't be this kind of a burden and oppression. And um, I was really taken back by that. I went away a bit confused. Uh, but I think that, that that narrative, that line of thinking is actually alive today. Uh, you hear some young ministers speaking of this kind of devotional life as a legalism. Uh, it could be if someone was seeking to, to earn God's favor by it and through it, uh, but uh, it, it certainly isn't supposed to be. Now, when we see David delighting in the Lord in the Psalms, uh, that should be our model and pattern uh, for seeking the Lord. I, as we read our Bibles, as we, we read our confession, we recognize that there are really three uh, piety is really like a three-legged stool, and, and one part of that, of course, is personal. We've heard about that. I, I personally carve out time in the morning uh, to read uh, the Bible. Uh, my Bible reading plan is much like Dr. Kelly was explaining, uh, three chapters a day, four chapters a day. It's on a, it's on a sheet. Actually, Ligonier has a wonderful—we uh, sent it out to our congregation at the beginning of the year. They have a wonderful list of various reading Bible reading uh, plans, about eight or nine, ten of them, and you can pick which one may fit you the best, but yes, Bible reading every day uh, gets you through the Bible in one year. Some of those are two-year and three-year plans, but you want to move slower. Uh, in the past, I've done things like read uh, sermons. Uh, I've read through every one of Lloyd-Jones's uh, sermons. So there was one year where I read straight through the Ephesians sermons. There was a couple years where I read through uh, the Romans uh, sermons. I've read through Calvin's sermons. I never forget... Um, reading uh, uh, Dr. Kelly's translation of uh, Calvin's sermons on, on 2 Samuel and being so impacted by it. I remember those devotions like it was yesterday. And this is, this is 15, 16 years ago I read that. Um, uh, so, yeah, and of course, a prayer along with that, getting alone with God, carving out that time, guarding that time. Uh, and then, of course, the second uh, leg of the stool would be family worship. And in family worship, uh, every night after dinner, we, we, I asked my son Hans, nine years old, to go grab the hymnals. And so he lugs all the hymnals in and, and puts them down, and, and then he hands them out. And uh, we sing a hymn. For years, we sang a psalm out of the Psalter. This past year, we've been singing hymns. And, uh, and then we are, uh, we'll, I'll open the larger catechism. We've gone through several Reformed catechisms. Right now, we're going through the larger catechism. We'll do some question and answer uh, and some discussion on that. Then we are uh, reading through various parts of the Bible. So we're reading through the book of Acts right now and, uh, and having discussion. And then we pray. And then we, um, we sing the doxology or the Gloria Patri to end it. And so that's what we do uh, every night in family worship. And then, of course, corporate worship is, is the third 
leg of the stool. And uh, I just want to, to encourage you ministers, young ministers, when you, when you lead worship, uh, when you preach, when you administer the sacraments, make sure that you are all in and that you are worshiping. Uh, this is not just for the congregation. It's for you. Uh, worship when you preach. Uh, enjoy the Lord as you administer the sacraments. May it not be something that is just a, a, a duty you have to get through. I hear people saying, when do you take your, your Lord's Day or your Sabbath, John? Uh, <laughs> I, t- I take it on the Sabbath. <laughs> Uh, I, I don't like this distinction. I mean, I, you, you can ask me when, when I take a little bit of time off. That's fine. But um, don't ask me when I take a Sabbath. It's, 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 on, it's on the Sabbath. And uh, may that be an encouragement uh, uh, to all of us uh, to do the same. So, and, of course, uh, reading, uh, reading bi- always reading a biography of some kind, reading through good commentaries, all of these kinds of things should be. I once heard a minister tell me he hadn't read hardly anything since seminary. Uh, with, a, with a straight face, almost as a badge of honor, he told me this. Uh, the man had been in ministry for 25 years. And uh, we have to, our, the freshness of our ministry will often depend upon not only our, our, our Bible reading, but our, our reading of Christian biography, Christian history, uh, learning from the, the mistakes of others in the past, and also from their great strengths. There's not a lot I can add to what, what they've said in the sense that they've touched on the issue of having a, a regular quiet time, to use that language, and that's absolutely vital. Uh, the, the whole issue of public worship in the life of the believer, uh, and the minister in particular. Um, let, me, let me say that I've not always been at a church the size of 10th. Actually, probably most of my moves have been to a church smaller than the church I was in before. Apart from one, and uh, and that has been and for and in several of those occasions, I was a solo minister. There wasn't even a secretary to help me. And uh, in most of those things, I would be preaching in my first church when I was 22. Uh, you go to university younger in Scotland because we're obviously brighter than everyone else. <laughs> but um, in my first church, I was 22 and had four sermons to to preach. I also taught the youth fellowship. We, we also ran outreach meetings, uh, and there were prayer meetings, and all the visitation had to be done by, by me. And that's how, I, I just thought that's how a minister operated. And uh, I miss that. I, I miss that in 10th because we have other staff people who see see my the congregation i it's really really hard not seeing the congregation and knowing what's going on in their life and so on that's that's a psych, psychological change but the point i want to make is that a lot of the time in those churches very often in those churches i had nobody who shared my theological perspective nor did i have Friends, I, there was there's nobody I was at seminary with, for example, that I'm in touch with today. There was no, so there's no body of. I come here and I look at you guys talking to each other, and obviously you have a relationship with one another, and you have you're one-minded. And what a gift that is to you! What a gift that is to you! I have never had that in in my ministry. Seriously, even when I was in London, and, and I had good friends there, <clears throat> those good friends of mine there are nowhere near being reformed, really. They think they are, but they're absolutely nowhere near being reformed. And so in the loneliness of the ministry, in the study, every morning in the study, I share with Steve, the mornings are for God. uh, And nothing interrupts that. Nothing. I will not take on anything that interrupts the morning. Uh, I'm communing with God in the preparation of His Word as well as my own personal quiet time. But I've had that. <clears throat> when I'm preparing sermons, I, I want God to speak to me. In those times of my study, this may sound really crazy, I have had the fellowship of the saints. I have friends in my study who have come to my aid. There's John Boy up here. He's written a lot of commentaries and a couple of institutes. And uh, he, he, he regularly ministers to me. Uh, there's old Martin over there, and, and, uh, and there's uh, Charnock, and, and uh, there's 
Johnny Boy Owen over there. In, in, in the quietness of my study with no other friends, they're my friends. They have been my friends. They have been ministers to my soul. And as I've read them, I've stopped and thanked the Lord. I've walked around. Mm. This, this business of walking around, maybe it's an ex-Baptist thing. But <laughs> I, I have to get up. I have to get up from my desk. And sometimes I've done a little dance. Maybe there's a charismatic element there too. Uh, but for joy at some of the things that I'm discovering in the Word of God. Mm. And the last thing I would say is this, that on Sundays, it is... I have grown in my Christian life over the years through the preaching of the Word of God. I believe that the preaching of the Word of God is the Word of God. And it didn't stop when I was doing all the preaching myself. I'm as surprised by what I say when I'm preaching as everybody else is. I mean, I, I prepare so much, I prepare, I over-prepare. And the, when I went to 10th, you know, they had me preaching two sermons in the morning. And, at the beginning, the elders came to both, and they're saying, you have to go to both because they're not the same. We're used to somebody reading a manuscript at both services. That does not happen. They're not the same sermon. And I'm surprised because I, I react with the congregation. I like to eyeball the congregation, and there's something in the dynamic, I think, of preaching the Word of God that you, you do apply the Word of God differently and so on. But I go home impacted by the Word of God, I disappear. In my mind, I am not conscious. When I am preaching, I am not conscious of myself. Mm. One of the things I hate is coming to a conference like this where I don't know people and I have to preach because I am far more conscious of myself. It takes me a wee while to get over myself and forget myself so that I get into the business. And once I've got into the business, I forget about myself. And the Word of God is... I'm not going to use New Age, New Age language like channeling, but you know what I mean. It's, you're the instrument. That's all you are. And the Word of God does the work in my heart as well. And I'm so grateful to God for that. Thank you. Please. The, the theme of this week on uh, the Minister's Piety is also the theme of the Gospel Reformation Network this year. Uh, that is the focus, the Minister's Piety. Um, several of us have seen a real dearth of teaching, writing, encouragement in this area. Uh, so this year, last year, you remember the five questions that were answered by lots of ministers on the doctrine of sanctification in general? Well, this year, the five questions are dealing with the minister's piety. And there are several ministers answering these questions, uh, several in this room. Uh, and on our website, gospelreformation.net, uh, those are already starting to be posted on the blog, on the website there. So I would uh, commend that to you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I have to muster all the self-control I can not to ask further questions. This has been, to me, a remarkably helpful and insightful panel. We are at our hour. Would you please join me in expressing our thanks and appreciation to our panelists?